My biggest accomplishment? Yeah. Staying alive? You take a sound, and then, boom, it hit me. Two hits of acid. 14 years old. It was an experience. And then change its nature. I'm thinking about it. I was bad, man. Multiplicity of operation. You got to remember that I was kind of okay with being unconscious. Recorded a different speed. I'm convinced. I don't know how true it is that I lost something. You know, when you lose something, you don't know you lost it until you're looking for it. Right. It's kind of like that, except I don't know what I lost. I couldn't tell you. It was like a sixth sense. It was an intuition. It was something was gone that I was never going to get. Welcome to the podcast Real Resilience. My name is Teresa van Til. In 2016, I moved from Amsterdam to New York City. There, I met a variety of colorful and inspiring people whose presence and personalities have made my life more interesting and who have challenged me to leave my blind judgment behind. The first two and a half months of 2021, I have traveled the East Coast of North America to interview these people and to learn more about their successes, their losses, and their ability to overcome adversity. For this episode, I spoke with New York City-based actor, writer, and producer Ariel Elias. His turbulent life starts when his father abducts him when he is still an infant and brings him to Israel. Six years later, he is reunited with his mother in New York City. The family dynamic he grows up in is interesting and loving, but challenging. At a young age, he is inspired by and drawn to the vibrant energy of the streets of New York City. He grows into an energetic and creative young man, but proves to be a challenge to any authoritarian adult. When Ariel starts experimenting with drugs, his mother sends him to a privately owned and operated therapeutic boarding school and residential treatment facility in Utah called Sorsen's Ranch. Uh, it, I was a very young, I think I was 13, 14 years old. We were hanging out in Central Park and I was like, man. We live probably in the greatest city on earth. There are 7 billion people, at that time it's probably like 6 billion, 6.5 billion, 7 billion people in the world, 12 million of them, right, are in New York State, but there's 8 million in, in the city, 2 million in Manhattan, 2 million out of 7 billion. And I'm one of those people growing up in the city. I thought was amazing. It's home. Like you don't know anything else. You don't have a reference point. When I first got sent to Utah, I couldn't sleep because it was so quiet. I was used to New York. So and were you already using heroin back then as well? Well, yeah. So I was using heroin uh, before going to Utah, but I was sniffing it. And cocaine was my number one drug. When I came back from Utah, that's when I started shooting it. What happened in Utah? How did you end up there? So I ran, out, I ran away from home. I dropped out of school. Nobody knew where I was. My mom was freaking out that she was going to find me dead in some alley. 
So she got something called a pins warrant against me, which is in New York. It doesn't exist anymore. I think they just changed the law, but it's person in need of supervision, P-I-N-S. So if your kid's under the age of 18 and you can't control your kid, you get a pins warrant. So the cops eventually got their hands on me. I was, I was in a band with this guy that was obsessed with Kurt Cobain. And Kurt Cobain just committed suicide and he knew I was doing heroin. He's like, Yariel's going to die too. So he called my mom. But... So the cops got me and took me to court. And I found myself in front of Judge Judy. Judge Judy, before she was a judge on TV, was a judge in family court in Manhattan. And my mom tried to force rehab, uh, rehab help on me, but the judge said, look, this is New York. Your kid's got rights. And unless he breaks the law, there's nothing I can do. So my mom got a program called Helping Hands. And what Helping Hands does is Helping Hands comes and kidnaps your kid from a state like New York where your kid has rights and takes your kid to a place like Utah where your kid has no rights until the age of 19. So that's where I got sent. I got sent to Utah, which was fucking awful. It was more like a therapeutic community, right? So you live there long term. They try to make you go to school. If you don't go to school, they make you hike. If they don't make you hike, they, they restrain you and start bending your arm back until you give in. Yeah. Sorensen's Ranch School fucked me up for life. And you can put fucking Sorensen's Ranch in there. I had never heard of Sorison's Ranch before this interview. Ariel's comment made me curious to learn more, so I went online to find more information. I found this promo video. At Sorensen's Ranch School, we give adolescents a chance to discover that everything they need to win in life is already inside them. We help them understand that. We have the means to help your team succeed. When I continued my search, I also found several alumni groups, or survivors, as they call themselves. When I visited these blogs and webpages, I got a different picture of the impact of the school. Some of the ex-students' statements include, They just ripped my childhood away and turned all of us into lifeless kids who just sat and obeyed the rules. Lifelong abandonment wound created unhealthy codependent relationships and required lots of therapy. Walking around in circles forever. How to be a better criminal. I survived, therefore I can do anything. Developing PTSD. That this place has an impact on young lives is certain. I asked Ariel about his experience. You're not allowed to talk to your family for the first 30 days. And in those first 30 days, they start warming up your parents. You know, he's going to want to leave. He'll say all kinds of things that aren't true. And then what tends to happen is... Uh, then what happens is when you finally do get to talk to your family, not only have they warmed them up to all the things that you think, you know, what your child might say, but they sit there over you with a phone call to watch what you're saying. And if you get in an argument or if you tell them what you, what you're really going through, they hang up. I wanted to get in touch with more Sorison's Ranch alumni and posted a request online. The responses were overwhelming. Here's an excerpt of my conversation with Nicole and Jesse, who both attended the ranch in the 90s. I was just alone. You're just alone. You're a kid that's put into, like, 
a really awkward situation with a lot of strangers and you just do what you're told because they're going to fuck you up if you don't. Part of a lot of the trauma initially came from like trying to defend myself from violent, aggressive people my age. For how long were you there? Uh, I was there for a year and I... Uh, Whole year? No, I was there for two, but I was there for a year um, and I ran away and I came back to New York. And what how, I, how did you run away? So what was happening is people, you know, at three months, people would get a visit. Uh, somebody would come and visit them there. At six months, you get to go home and visit home. At nine months, you, you go back for good. I got my first visit in about seven months when other people were already like visiting their home. Uh, at a year, I get another visit, but they wouldn't fucking give me a home visit because they were worried that I was going to escape. And I probably fucking would have. I mean, the place was so fucked up. Sorosan's Ranch Program Director Lane Bagley speaks about how the school focuses on instilling confidence in its students. And, and you know, there has to be discipline, there has to be structure, there has to be therapy, and and we're a combination of those things, as well as academics. But I think the underlying ingredient that has made Sorensen such a success has been the fact that we really um, focus on building confidence and self-esteem in our youth. Shane Sorensen, the owner, his wife Jill, she pleaded no contest to 29 counts of child molestation. And and that, that just blew my mind. And Why did it blow, why did it blow, blow my mind? Oh, because like, um, well, on the one hand, it didn't surprise me at all. It was a negative environment where like filled with self-righteousness. And meanwhile, you know, the people supposedly rehabilitated, you know, in this case, were actually doing something terrible. And when I went to Sorensen's, they had a school program and I kept doing eighth grade work the whole two years I was there, like eighth grade work, eighth grade work. It was easy. It was simple. I did it. I've got credits. So when I left Utah, they put me into like 11th grade because I had all these credits, but I had only been educated as far as eighth grade. And so then when I went into high school, when I got home, I just immediately dropped out because it was just so like mind blowing. I couldn't comprehend anything I was being taught. I wasn't at the same level as the other students. According to 2020 data released by the Justice Police Institute, the average state cost for the secure confinement of a young person is now $588 per day, or $214,620 per year. When I came back from Utah for good, you know, I was ready to... Let's party! And everybody was like, what are we talking about? <laughs> Party's over. We got to go to college. So I didn't get to grow with everybody. Now, I could have grown, grown with everybody or I could have gotten a lot worse a lot quicker. I don't know. I didn't know this back then, but something happens when you get locked up like that. You become institutionalized. You ever see guys go to prison for 25 years? They come out. And then they just commit a small crime just so they can go back in. You become institutionalized. 
So when you're told when to eat, when to sleep, when to wake up, when to do this, when to do that, stop crying, stop this, stop that, you don't know what to do when you're alone. And I came back to New York, I was here for two months, and I was like, oh my God, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And everything worked on a point and level system there. So they said, Ariel, if you come back, we'll put you, we'll start you on level two. And I was like, okay, sounds good. But of course, when I got back, uh, I brought back heroin with me. And I shared it with a lot of people. Somebody got caught nodding out. They asked what's wrong. He said, Ariel's got heroin. That was the end of that. And they gave me like 3,800 community service hours or something like that. There was level one and then there was level one isolation where you're like in an orange jumpsuit and you have to go on the hikes and you have to do the workouts. uh, But you spend most of your day laying in a cow pasture, um, like dehydrated, you know, like, yeah, they bring you food and water. But like, I mean, it's like pretty hard on a, on a person. And I didn't even have to do that. I just saw people who like, I read one person's story where they, they were having to do that in a sleeping bag out there with the snow and like urinating in their own piss freezing over and just like pretty terrible stuff. And the adults who you would think would protect you were actually the majority of the not feeling safe. Right. I mean, they broke people's arms, broke people's ribs. You had to listen to people. If you did not, you'd get physically abused. People have left there and committed suicide. Coming back from Sorison's ranch marks for Ariel the start of 16 years of heavy drug use, homelessness, and jail time. I remember so clearly, specifically saying to myself, I am never going to trust anybody ever Never. Anybody. So, when I came back um, from going to Utah and being very open about, yes, I'm getting hot. Yes, I don't care. Yes, this. I realized I can't do that in Utah. In Utah, I have to pretend to play the game no matter what's going on in my head. You know, talking to you about it makes me realize that you shouldn't be 14, 15 years old and go, okay, now I'm never going to trust anybody ever again. No. You know? Uh, and kids that age shouldn't be running away from home and dropping out of school and doing drugs. No. You know? Kids a couple years younger than that shouldn't be jumping on their desk in seventh grade and telling the teacher to go fuck himself and trying to get the class all riled up. In eighth grade, we were trying, he was trying to teach us, another teacher was trying to teach us Shakespeare, and I was telling Andrew Dice Clay jokes. But do you know why? Uh, I don't know why. I mean, you know, I could tell you a million and one things that might be a reason for it. You know, my dad going back to Israel could have something to do with it, right? Um, It could have been that I've always... My dad was always around. My dad's personality was so loud that when he was finally gone, I felt like I had a voice. And my need to be heard, because children need to be heard and seen, um, created this monstrous persona. You know, I walk, you, you know, I walk into a room, I can suck the air out of the room, just like my dad can, except 
I think my dad did it with more like muscle and violence where I think I do it with entertainment. I think it just comes from a place where I'm a little hurt child that needs to be seen and heard. And when I do stuff like that and I get people to like me, I get the validation I want. At Sorensen's Ranch School, we give adolescents a chance to discover that everything they need to win in life is already inside them. We help them understand that. We have the means to help your team succeed. You know, their theory over there was you break the person down and then you rebuild them back up. And anybody and everybody now knows that doesn't work. You told me that you've lived on the streets for a while in New York. New York, in Miami, yeah. Can you share a little bit about New York? You got to be a little bit more specific. Okay. Do you want the end? Right before I got sober. I mean, it's like spread out. I was homeless in little Haiti in Miami. I was, you know. Ariel's early years are marked by the troubled relationship between his parents. And it turns out that the events which happened during his childhood have left certain scratches on his soul. When he tries to get clean for good and seeks therapy, he finds that spending his early years in Israel with his loving but dominant father and not being reunited with his mother and his home country until the age of six have had a big impact on him. He then also realizes that when his father went back to Israel a few years later and left him behind in the United States, he was hurt. He felt abandoned. On top of that, his time at Sorison's ranch equally scarred him. Through therapy, he learns that his drug use and excessive behavior have been a form of self-medicating underlying pain, and that he, if he truly wants to get clean and eliminate the risk of falling back in self-medicating habits, has to address the underlying issue and deal with his childhood trauma. The people that are very hard to get sober are people who we say the streets are good to. Were the streets good to you? Yeah. What? Yeah. I've got a few things going for me. One is I've got no limit, right? I could go as low as I need to go. I'm Caucasian. It's fucked up, but I'm Caucasian. I'm well-spoken. I can carry myself, kind of like what we were talking about, right? On the outside, I could be great. While on the inside, there's nothing but fire. Though it's not impossible, it's rare to have people come through the homeless shelter, you know, that know a lot about neurology (laughs) or know a lot about the things that I enjoy reading about. And I can pretend to be more well-spoken than I actually am. And because I'm kind of a big guy, Mm -hmm. you know, like sex, sex one, I got broad shoulders. I realize that also if I don't say anything and I'm really quiet, people are intimidated. Because I am perceived as a big guy that can fight. When in all reality, it's really my sharp tongue and my sense of humor that's going to get me out of trouble. That happened to me a few times in jail. We're about to throw down. And if it wasn't for my sense of humor, either diffusing the situation or having made so many friends with my sense of humor, I would have ended up throwing down. So there's that. I got caught uh, with possession down in Broward County, Florida. With the smallest amount of drugs. Mm. The month before, I got caught with three bundles in Miami. They sent me in. I went through central booking, and then they let me go. No charges, nothing. 
How much is three bunkers? 30 bags. Wow. I get caught up one county over. One's Miami, the other one's Fort Lauderdale. I get caught in the Fort Lauderdale area county with $5 worth of crack. That's it. This is the shit. They said they were going to let me go, too. And how did you experience it? Um, it's fucking awful because they, they actually said they want, they want to put me on probation. They're going to put you on probation for a year. Don't come in any, you know, don't do anything wrong. And I begged them not to put me on probation. I got in an argument with my lawyer. My lawyer's, what the fuck are you talking about? You gotta go fucking. I was like, no, no, no. Don't put me on probation because I knew I had a drug problem. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to stop, that I would have pissed dirty. I would have violated and I would have ended up going to jail. But they, they let you out on probation anyway. Yeah, my lawyer pressured me. Man, if I remembered his name, I'd tell you his name too. Don't ever call that guy. It was like David Simons or something like that. I don't know. Maybe that's, I don't know. And you you told them, like, no, don't do this. Well, I, I, I yeah, because I knew. I, I had a drug problem. And I knew that I couldn't stop. If you say, Ariel, don't steal anything for the next year, I'm like, okay. Ariel, don't break in anybody's house for the next year. Okay. Ariel, don't do anything stupid. Okay. Ariel, don't do drugs for the next year. It's not fucking possible for me. Yeah. It's not. So I knew right away that it was going to be a problem. And I asked to transfer my... My paperwork to New York. Mm. And um, they said, okay, I came to New York. New York said, oh, they didn't, they did the paperwork wrong. You need to go back down there. No, 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 please, 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 please. Because in New York, you can actually go to rehab and get help. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I went back down there. They piss tested me. And that was the end of that. And then I went to jail. And I got, you know, I was going through withdrawals in jail. Yeah. It wasn't long. It was a few months. Mm -hmm. Not bad. Just such a broken fucking system to help. How would you get your money? I would hustle. I would steal shit. I would sell shit. You know, sometimes people would call me and be like, hey, can I, you know where I can get some stuff? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I'd get them stuff. And in that transaction, if I even showed up with their stuff, they would get me some too. Every time, when I was already on my way to the dealer to get more, I was thinking, how am I going to get more money for more stuff? It, it's a, it, it's, it, it's more than a full-time job, right? A full-time job is nine to five, even nine to 11. I couldn't sleep at night if I didn't know how I was getting it in the morning. So it's almost like it it's becomes your life. That's heroin. That's yeah, that's heroin. That look, that's that can be drugs in general, but I think heroin gets a different kind of grip on you. You know, crystal meth has its grip on you. Crack has its grip its grip on you. They all have their different kind of grip, and heroin has it its grip on you. And heroin. Along with methadone. Methadone's a nasty one, too. Uh, it, it's a very, very physical. 
grip. Mm. You know, going through withdrawals is fucking, ugh. It's, I, I would definitely classify it uh, up there with, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, it sucks. Yeah, I was convinced heroin withdrawals was probably the worst thing in the world. Mm. You know, and then I dealt with the with the trauma stuff that came up. Oh my god, so much worse. Heroin withdrawal has a time limit. You know, it might be three days, it might be a week, depends on your use. You know, you might not start sleeping until a month, but eventually you start feeling better. With when trauma stuff came up, I mean, that's there's no if you don't get a medication, man. Ariel has been clean for eight years now and helps others who struggle with addiction. In the past eight years, he has become a successful actor, writer, and producer. He works closely with acting guru Bob Krakauer and runs a home studio where he puts other actors on tape. He is successfully working through his childhood trauma, even though it is the hardest and most painful thing he has ever done. As a final question, I asked him what advice he would give to young kids experimenting with drugs. Here's what he had to say. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. From my experience, um, from what I've been through, you have to experience it. You don't have to experience substances, but you have to experience something to make a decision. Right? Unless your life runs on an Excel spreadsheet. And if it does, you're probably not using substances. But what if it's listening to this podcast? Well, that again, that's not... I, I would say to people who want to stop and find that they can't stop, that there's a solution. I would say to the people that see nothing but darkness in front of them, where there is no future that there is always a light at the end of the tunnel, even when you can't see it. What I don't think I can do is give people uh, advice at the beginning of a journey. Does that make sense? Because it's their journey. It's like the Robert Frost poem, you know, Two roads diverged in the woods, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that made all the difference, right? Well, two roads diverged in the woods, and I actually took the one less traveled by, and that shit fucked my life up. But nonetheless, that was my journey, right? There are certain things in life where people are open to uh, advice, from people that might have experienced it. Um, teenagers, right? In my, in my case, telling me no or that's a bad idea made me have to try it. I had, you no, know, it's bad. Now I really have to do it, you know? Oh, shooting heroin's bad? I shouldn't shoot cocaine with the heroin? Oh, I got to do that, you know? Um... Would I have enjoyed going on the other path? I don't know. It would have been very different. Look, I, I love helping people. 
But I think part of helping people, you know, it's not about if you help people. Yes, you do. It's how and when you help them. They have to be receptive. Usually when people are down and out, they're very receptive. The acronym for God, G-O-D, one of the acronyms is gift desperation. When somebody's in complete desperation, they're open. You know, somebody calls me and says, I'm sick and tired of this. I'm going to go drink. So that sounds great. Let me know how that works out for you. Nothing I can say and nothing I can do. Be the eagle. And the eagle soaring to the skies, flying all by himself. Right? Or you can be the sheep. And the sheep is just being herded with a bunch of other sheep. Neither one is good or bad. Right? Some people are like, I don't want to be the sheep. I want to be the lion. I want to be the eagle. Well, the eagle flying up in the sky all alone gets to see a lot of stuff. Yeah. But it's very lonely. The sheep doesn't get to see as much, but he's got his other sheep. It's just two different experiences. And it's nice in my case. I think I have gotten to experience both. Though I think I might have lived life a little bit like a... Eagle. I'd like to say that, but it sounds a lot sexier than it actually is. <laughs> Maybe a little chihuahua locked up in a cage or something. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Because you get a lot of phone calls. Yeah. Fucking a lot. You know? You answer all of them? Um, yeah, I got to tell you, in the last six months or so, I've been... Uh, Drawing boundaries. New thing I learned. Boundaries, great. Um, so I still do, but I don't answer them right away. Mm. Sometimes I'll call. Uh, sometimes I'll let it go to the voicemail. I'll call back later. Sometimes I'll text. I'll be like, if it's not urgent, I'll text. I'll be like, hey, why don't you reach out to me between this and this time? Um, but yeah, it's you know, you help people. You feel useful. Does it help you stay away from things as well? Helping other people. Or are you not afraid of going back? Oh, the drugs? Yeah, it, it must. Because I've... Yeah, even when the trauma thing came up, I was in so much pain, but I didn't... I wasn't even thinking about getting high. I wanted to die, yeah. but I wasn't thinking about getting high. You know, people came out of the woodwork to help me because I was able to show up for so many others. Let's end on that. Cool. Thank you for listening to Real Resilience, the podcast. Connect with us through our Instagram page at Real Resilience the Podcast to learn more about the other episodes and the resilient people's inspiring background stories.